Hello and welcome to Big Business Briefs with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week, you might have noticed in the news quite a bit, in the UK certainly, um, that we've got a CO2 shortage. Yet, the subject that we chose to talk about, um, we hadn't even considered the situation where we would be in with CO2 this week when we chose this. And in fact, the subject we're talking about is an excess of CO2. And what can you do with all this CO2? And now, no, you put it into your beer, you put it into bags of lettuce, you use it in meat processing. However, what we're talking about is the project that's um, taking place around the northwest and North Wales, which is about capturing CO2 from organisations that produce a lot of CO2, the industry that produces a lot of CO2, and then going and squirrelling it away under the sea. And it's described as a win-win for tackling climate change and securing and creating jobs. That's according to the article in the Daily Post that we read about carbon capture. Heather, what do you think? Well, when you mentioned it last week... Uh, when we were planning for, for this week's podcast, I was like, well, that's not even a thing. I mean, that's quite obscure. <laughs> um, it's quite a then, big thing, it's isn't it? It's just ramped up massively to the point where, in the same way that I think two weeks ago we were talking about something and Jeremy Vine was talking about it on his show, um, lo and behold, he's talking about it today. So it, it, it doesn't get much bigger than that. Oh, no. uh, but 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 this is born from the shortage rather than from the um, storing of yeah, it. Yeah, so it's dumping of it effectively. It, I see it as a bit like landfill, really, but with gas. Yeah. So it's actually officially called the Low Carbon Cluster Project, Hynet Northwest, and it's where um, energy giants are repurposing their oil and gas fields so you can imagine that they're pumping out oil and pumping out gas using the pipelines to do it i'm doing i'm doing the head motions yeah Yeah. perfect for a podcast isn't it i'm miming moving gas along a pipeline Um, and then they've got these empty spaces and according to this article the um the operators of these coal, uh, not coal, um, gas and oil beds are, are coming to the end of the life cycle for these within the next few years. And they've had this brainwave is that they've now got a, a project to fill them back up again um, with a different type of gas and use the same infrastructure that pumped it out to pump it back in. Yeah. I have to admit that, I mean, clearly this is a subject that is way beyond my knowledge and expertise. There's the police coming for us now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and yet, there's a little bit of me that thinks, you know, the void that they've taken the gas out of. Yeah. Um, if you fill that up with something, would gas not... So if we left them empty, would it not refill with gas? Because gas... It's not a finite fuel, is it? Yeah, it, those so the hydrocarbon uh, fuels they are fairly finite, only from the point of view of time. Yeah, as so to how long it takes for those. So in our lifetime, yeah. no, they're not going to regenerate. No, um, over the lifetime of the planet, at some point they will, but probably not in that those gaps that they've left. 
But if we've shoved something else in there, how do we know that there won't be some sort of chemical reaction? I, I don't know about I, that. It just all... I, I have all these images of, like, sort of where does the gas leak out to? Or is, is it just storing away a problem for future generations? Yeah. I, I don't really know. Um, but they're very excited about it with yeah. this HiNet project. And I have to say, I have a very personal interest in this, in that both my husband and my sister-in-law are having their jobs virtually guaranteed because of this project. Well, there you go. That's, yeah. that's so, you know, just speaking from my little corner of the world, yeah. that's okay. Um, it, it's planning um, to, to start taking in CO2 from as early as 2025. Now, I didn't realise that making hydrogen, which is one of the new green um, energy sources that is, is being talked about, Making hydrogen produces CO2. So one of the first uses for these empty um, fields will be um, CO2 from hydrogen plants. Okay. We're making hydrogen sort of for um, energy. Um, okay. And then they say in this article that it, by 2030, it could be taking 25% of all the CO2 emitted in the northwest and North Wales. So... Um, my husband works at a cement factory and um, they, they're part of this project. They're named in this article as being one of the companies that's using this project to reduce the environmental impact. So the CO2 that they produce, instead of being pumped into the air, will go along this infrastructure, this pipeline and get pumped into the space. So, yeah, I, I can sort of see um, both sides of the coin. I can see it's... Um, it's a good opportunity to use some space, use infrastructure. I still can't get my head around it. But then I was thinking about, well, the alternatives, um, uh, some of the worries were about fracking, uh, but that's a, a different type of pumping a gas where you overfill um, a site, whereas what they're talking about here is actually um, only going to 80% capacity. So not overfilling them with gas. So with fracking, you shove a lot of gas into a space to make it shatter. Mm -hmm. So they, they said in this article very clearly that they'll only go to 80% and then plug it up okay. so that it doesn't cause this fracture of the ground. So that's one concern. Um, yeah, the other thing that I, I was intrigued to see was um, an, a better understanding of hydrogen. Did you read that bit uh, about blue and green hydrogen? Well, yeah. Again, I'm I'm not I'm not up to speed with any of this. The thing that um, the thing that interests me is, from a business point of view, what is the benefit of all of this? We're looking at it from an environmental point of view. Mm. Ultimately, nobody's going to be doing this unless there isn't a business point of view, and yeah. presumably, this is around the net zero thing, is it? Well. I would say for the energy companies that are repurposing their fields, it, there is very business a clear business point of view because they're, gonna they would them. have yeah. yeah so they're going to get paid to do this and the companies that would pay them to take the CO two um, would be the companies that are trying to reduce their carbon footprint so yeah, yeah. and it's given the energy we we talked about the energy companies having to. Um, relook at their strategies because um, fossil fuels were in the decline mm. um, and this is part of that I think. So the blue and green hydrogen thing um, 
Tell me a bit about that. Well, yeah, I'd never heard of this before. So I'd heard the phrase green hydrogen, but didn't have a clue. And it doesn't actually mean green in colour. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> something like grot bags with the <laughs> green mist around you. So blue hydrogen is where natural gas, so we've we still got the gas, is split into hydrogen and CO2, either by this thing called steam methane reforming or autothermal reforming, but apparently that is the CO2 um, that is going to be captured because this is a cheaper way to make hydrogen at the moment. Okay. So when, when they're talking about capturing the hydrogen, uh, the CO2 from hydrogen production, they're talking about blue hydrogen. However, green hydrogen um, is produced by splitting water. Okay. So oxygen yep. and um, yep and hydrogen in, in water and it uses electrolysis and renewables so it's a far more green far more sustainable option but at the moment it's more expensive but the energy companies are talking more about going towards green hydrogen and we look again this week very topical the energy prices are going through the roof at the moment so there's some real big shifts in some of the big industries at the moment um, and this is where the business impact is. If you're consuming energy, I've seen where some manufacturing companies have had to stop production this week because of the soaring energy prices. So something's got to shift, something's got to change. Well, there was some news came out this afternoon, we're recording this on uh, Tuesday, Tuesday. Yeah. Um, that... And this is to do with this shortage of carbon dioxide. So the government struck a deal with a US company who are going, they are going to start manufacturing CO2 so that the fertiliser factories and the food production industries that use CO2 yeah. to... Can they, this is the thing that got me. Can't they just go to these producers like the cement manufacturer with a big hoover and go... Yeah. Right, we'll have all that CO2, thank you very much. There's, there's an overproduction of CO2 there. There's an underproduction there. Oh, can we just join I the know. two up? And I was in the car at the time when Jeremy Vine was on and, and my ears pricked up when I thought, oh, CO2. We, yeah, we're going to be talking about this. And they had um, a scientist on there and somebody phoned in and said exactly that. Seems quite straightforward to me. We've got a glut of this stuff. And we've got a shortage of this stuff, so surely if everybody just spoke to each other, it'd all be fine. There's obviously a really straightforward <laughs> answer to this one, is there? There's no mechanism for capturing that CO2. No, well, it's to do with the um, the, the scale. So, okay. so there's so much CO2 emissions from manufacturing. Yeah. That's much more than would actually be needed for... Okay, I'm still not seeing the problem here. Right. And then it's something to do with the density of it. So I think that... Um, what the guy was saying is so it's almost as though it needs watering down in some way shape or form that's my interpretation of what he was saying but essentially it sounds like there is so much of it that I don't know why they couldn't bury some and use some I hadn't quite got to that no. but there's some reason why not according to this so scientist. here's me thinking ahead to say so we've got these oil and gas fields plugged up with 80% capacity of CO2. And then at some point down the line, 30 years in the future, the um, salad bag manufacturers run out of CO2. Yeah. Can they just go and get a drill? And drill Mine a little bit. Yeah. Have a bit of that back, hole. please. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, or is that it? Is it plugged up and stuck there forever? I don't know. I don't know. And, and I imagine it's quite controversial, actually. Uh... 
But and, and I, the cynic in me thinks, isn't it interesting that these two stories exist side by side? Um, surely there's got to be a joined up answer to it, surely. I don't know. But whose interest would it be in? It's certainly not the CO2 manufacturer because they want to keep on manufacturing CO2. And it, I don't suppose it's really playing into the hands of the um, of the um, oil and gas giants because they've already got their plan. Yeah, they've already put the prices up. So the only way, surely, a levelling of gas prices needs to be the catalyst. Oh, is that a catalyst? Oh, you're a bad using word, chemical terms here, aren't you? Yeah. You're going oh, to get us into all sorts word, of trouble. Yeah. But I suppose I, I would come out and say that, on the whole, I think it's quite innovative thinking how they're going to reuse the infrastructure, how they're going to maintain the jobs, which I'm guessing is going to be the big draw for any funding. Mm. So, you know, there's thousands of jobs that can be retained by this and there's going to be investment into the North West and North Wales. So I imagine that it would also attract a fair amount of interest from funding bodies to do that, as well as what they're calling the um, uh, the green, the sustainable stroke climate change impact. So I, I, I think from that point of view, it's a positive yeah, there's just still this little niggle in the back of my head that it feels like... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of just burying the no, problem. No, it just, <laughs> you know, it's it's a classic, it'll come back and bite us on the bum sometime. Yeah. And as you say, not in our lifetime, probably. Yeah, and it's not yeah. encouraging um, the reduction of the production of CO2. It's just hiding it away, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, because, again, this guy was saying, somebody said, well, are you saying that every time I open a bag of salad leaves, I'm releasing some CO2 into the... Yeah, um, you're as bad as a manufacturer. Yeah, and he said, well, yes, however, it's not much worse than breathing it. Oh, okay. So I think think this is a massive subject. It's way beyond our capabilities. Way beyond our capabilities, but... I think... Never I think, let it be said. We shy away from the difficult subjects. No, no. no. And, we're just not going into a lot of detail. No, no, no. We're, no, but it, but I think it's a thing. for the, As I say, this time last week, I didn't even know this was a thing. And now, clearly, it is a thing. And, and now the element of the shortage is a thing. So we're one week into it being yeah. significant. So there we go. We were ahead of the curve. We, we always are. CO2. We always are. Yeah. But now, because we thought of the idea a week ago, and now this is going to be um, this podcast is going to be published um, days after this has all been a news item. Will look like we're just following. I know, and that's ah, that's a bummer. I know. We were leading edge. <laughs> we were leading edge. Never mind. Never mind. We'll we'll come up with some other harebrained thing to talk about. And you mark my words, it'll be big news by the time we talk about can we, it. Can we talk about the possibility of me winning the lottery then this yeah. week? <laughs> Let's make it happen. <laughs> okay, so um, review time. I'm sorry, I got us into this one. And um, I, I feel like... Yeah. How do you feel, Tracy? How do you feel? I feel full of remorse and sorry. <laughs> It's a super academic book, isn't it? It's very academic. It's not your style. As soon as I opened it, I thought, Heather's going to hate this. Um, to be honest, I didn't even like the cover. 
No, no, the cover's not exciting, is it? The cover doesn't <laughs> entice you in. It looks like um, looks like a, a puzzle from a mind enriching game on a <laughs> on an app on your phone, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, or the periodic table. It just reminded me. Oh, of did it? There you go. <laughs> yeah, chemistry again. Yeah. Yeah. Too much chemistry for one day. Anyway, so the book we chose to review was published in 2017 and it's called How to Take Smart Notes, um, which I think is relevant to all of us. We all have to write down stuff at some point. However, it is um, focused on a very particular niche and maybe that is the problem with the book for us. Um, the um, subtitle is One Simple Technique to Boost Writing, Learning and Thinking – for students, academics, and non-fiction writers. So um, the book is academic. Mm. It's very much like a, a research yes. document, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and I think the underlying principles in it are good. But if we compare it to what we reviewed last week, they're like chalk and cheese. Yeah, you get. I think you achieve the same outcome from both of them so if you like short to the point lots of white space on the page and a summary at the end of the chapter and some diagrams last week's book yes totally. get things done yeah was right up your street if you like to read an academic essay well-researched academic yeah. essay lots of references then how to take smart notes is for you yeah and i think it is as you say, it is broadly an academic book. However, I think some of the things relate to, um, well, in business and at work and when you are processing information. I mean, I find that actually, for me, if I don't write something down as somebody's talking to me about it, I don't remember it. Yeah. Right. So that's really important to me, that sort of process of something that's Taking going on between my brain ears. yeah yeah <laughs> to your hands to my hands yeah. yeah and I can I think I've said this in the past if I make notes I can visualize those notes for ages you know I'll go oh I know which page it's on and I can kind of remember what it looked like with my own yeah. sort of shorthand but that's a skill if you want to call it a skill that's a technique we'll call it a skill a technique that I've developed over many many years yeah uh and so what if I had had a system when I was studying then I might, and this might have ticked the box. I don't know. Yes, but I, I did have a study, uh, a study, a system when I was studying. Uh, I was studying business, so obviously quite a lot of books were around then, which pointed you towards good ways to take notes, to revise, whatever. And that's when I discovered, um, is it Tony Buzzan and Mind Maps? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so all of my note taking at uni. And all of my revision notes have always been mind map based. So right. when you say you visualise what you wrote yeah. on the page, I literally did yeah. visualise what I wrote on the page and less less handwriting and more, um, which, which when I'm taking notes now, say I'm in a meeting at work and if they dare to ask me to take the minutes, most people go a bit white and think that nothing's going to come out of this. <laughs> Because I don't write it in a, like a neat list or right. there's squiggles, lines and references and maybe a picture or two. <laughs> okay, which nobody else would be able to interpret because exactly. it's in your own yeah, language. Exactly. Yeah. But um, this, like you say, yeah, if you are studying or, or you're embarking on some research 
for work or for study. But I think it's just as applicable if you if you're writing a business report or or are actually doing some research. Then there's some really useful uh, tips in here, which um, are designed to get that system for you, so that you get into the habit of taking notes like this and systemizing it prioritizing things and, and basically getting some order from it oh we're blessed with the hoover in the background again heather it's yeah well i'll tell you now it's been very noisy here today so we're lucky that there isn't a strimmer <laughs> or a reversing vehicle or somebody shouting mind the blue car mind the blue car <laughs> like, luckily my car isn't blue otherwise i would be straight out the window trying to find out what's going on um yeah i apologize for that the, the the one thing that he meant is mentioned in this is something called a slip box. Have you come across? No, not until I read this book. No. Sorry, we didn't mention the the author and uh, Sunka Arons, I think you pronounce it. Sunka Arons. Um, the surname is A H R E N S. Right. Sorry. Back okay. to your. Uh, uh, your yeah. box, your slip um, box. Yeah, the sl slip box. It's a storage box used to keep all your valuable notes in an organised way. Uh, and actually, and and, and um, the author suggests that you keep two of these boxes, um, each for d slightly different things. And I started think when I was reading this part of the book, I, I, in the sample that I had, um, I thought, oh yeah, okay, that I can see how that makes sense because we've talked in the past about journaling, post-it notes, notebooks, ideas, yeah. you know, and you've got 50 all over the place. Where actually, if you could get to a point where you go, let's not be too attached to the book, let's be attached to the piece of information and put it in So I'm a thinking location. like index cards in a shoebox even, or even yeah. just in there. I'm thinking of a jam jar with lots of pieces of paper. Oh, right, I don't, okay. oh, no, I don't know, but you know, just a vessel of some sort. A vessel, yeah. Because you don't always have index cards with you. No. And I think this is So you're the thinking thing. as you write it as down. As you have an idea. Back of an envelope. Yeah, whatever. It goes in the box yeah. of the jam jar. Yeah. You're not planning to have many ideas or you're thinking of a really big jam jar? Quite a big jar. Okay. Uh, but I also will know that if I wrote it on the back of a shopping list or on the back of an envelope, I'd, be look I'd know what I'd written it on. Okay, so then let's take us through the process of what you then do with a slip box because you could just end up with archive box after archive box full of scraps of paper that Heather uh, made notes on. Yes. And then you never do anything with them. Yeah. And then there's fire and your office burns down because you had all this bits of paper. Yeah. Okay. That could easily happen <laughs> to me. I've gone to the extremes yes, there. <laughs> that could easily happen to me. Um, yeah. But of course the idea is that you, the first thing is, collating stuff in a location and then the next thing is sorting through it isn't yeah. it it's getting the idea out of your head yeah. isn't it making yes. sure that yeah. you're not having to store it in your brain you store it on the paper yeah and you've Be got it there so yeah because i am very good at lying in bed in the middle of the night i can i can craft amazing emails amazing marketing material all sorts of things um but unless i actually wake up and write it down which i don't then it's it's lost because you go oh, i'll remember that in the morning and then you go no i won't now is that the fleeting note i believe so yes that's what i would class as. so th this is where the book veers into a bit of um theory so it talks about lumen that lumen lumen 
Schlerben. Uh, yeah. Anyway, a sociology professor at the University of Bielefeld, um, and he's the author of nearly 60 books and 100 articles, so he must know a thing or two about note-taking. He talks about fleeting notes, and these are used to uncover ideas and thoughts, but these don't go into the slip oh, box. Okay. Instead, better make them on a piece of paper or a notebook that you come back to later. Okay. Then... There are literature notes, memos of all the things you've read, summed up in your own words and what they mean to you. God, that sounds like hard work to me. And then there are permanent notes, and these come from your fleeting and your literature notes. I'm not going to go down this route, Heather. Not this one. The the book has it has got its own suggestions as to what you do, but um, I'm not I'm not going to take on board uh, Lerman's exact recommendations for fleeting literature and permanent notes although i might take on board a sense of that idea and i think that sometimes with the things that we review it it's as much about thinking about how you think about things yeah so not every not every book we don't think every book or everything that we review is amazing but it but hopefully it keeps us thinking. Yeah. And you, you might consider, oh, actually, I could see there are bits of this. Um, and if you were writing a book, I mean, it, it's mentioned, you know, from a non-fiction point of view. Actually, I could see this working for me with, you know, some of the brilliant ideas that I have or brilliant pieces of information that I see that I have an opinion on that I could then gather together and then knock some shape into it and start to think then about, could that be a book? Could that be an yeah. article? Could that be a blog? Could it be whatever? One of the things I like about the um, the slip box idea is it takes the pressure off writing down your initial thoughts because sometimes you do get that, that whole pressure of the white piece of paper. And if you're writing yeah. a book, you might have to feel that every word you write is perfect. And what, what we know from writers is it's not about what you write, it's how much you write and yeah. just keep going over and over it. So in... Um, now, I'm referring here to the four-minute books version yeah. of this. There's a yeah. really good summary, which saved me the bother of having to read it. So thank you very much, four-minute books. But in lesson two here, he talks very much about um, using um, a slip box to generate ideas and so, so that you can be creative. You just write them down and you put them in the box and you're not thinking about them so much yet. So I think if you are... You're stuck for ideas for training. I'm designing a training programme at the moment and ideas are getting scribbled down everywhere. Um, or if you're stuck for even... It says non-fiction, but I mean, if you're writing a fiction book, you need to do this research as much as anything to come up with your story and your plot, don't you? So yeah, I, I think, think that's a good way of actually breaking through some of that block that you have, that mental block of, oh, God, I've, I've got to start now. Where do I start? Start by scribbling something on a bit of paper and shoving it in a box. I, I quite like that. Yeah, and also I think the other thing is that this doesn't necessarily have to have the output of you writing something, like an academic paper or a book or an article, because actually sometimes it's about, it could be about your business and ideas that you've had for development within your business. You know, I have a brainwave about, oh, I wonder whether to explore this option or I wonder whether I can look at that or wonder if I might need to review my pricing or I wonder if I... 
So, you yeah, know, and you can't do them all at once. No. So, uh, some of them might not be appropriate at the time yeah. that you think of it. Yeah. But if you review it later on, you might find that actually that fits in with the timing perfectly. So yeah. imagine you had a piece of equipment that generated a small amount of um, light, not dense, CO2, but you'd thought, well, I'm, I haven't got a use for that. All of a sudden, you look in your slip box this week and you go, now I know how to use yes. that little bit of equipment yeah. to make CO2. Time change. And actually, that's a really valid point because it's that classic. Um, Christmas happens at the same time every year and yet it always takes us by surprise. Yeah. And what shall I buy? Exactly. <laughs> Whereas actually, if you remember that in November, if, if you remember that in November you hadn't done enough planning for your your business for December, well, okay, you might remember Oh, you're not thinking about your Christmas list. You're thinking yeah. about business planning, or, sorry. Or, or anything, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it, anything, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's. I think it's about, I'll capture that rather than trust myself to remember it. I don't know if it's because of my age that I'm not trusting my memory, but... Well, if it is, I agree with you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we can... We're women of a certain age. We can bolster each other up that way, yeah. I think that I'd recommend this book and I'd recommend last week's book and I think that one or other is going to appeal to you. Out of those two books... Um, get things done which is it's not just about note-taking is it but it it falls into a similar category or this one here how to um, what's it called how to make smart how to take smart notes Um, I think you can lift something from both of those and and make a system of your own that works yeah Yeah. although I won't be using this (laughs) Largely because you saw the cover and took an instant dislike. Yeah, and I can't. Yeah, I can't get beyond that. Okay, so the the biggest review for how to take smart notes: one simple technique to boost writing, learning, and thinking is that Heather doesn't like the cover, so change it now, please. (laughs) Okay, right. Um, This week's profile is of somebody that was massive in the news many years ago. It seems. And he's sort of, it's been a little bit quieter. However, since we started reviewing him, I realised he never went away, did he? No. Really never went away. He's been very busy. The name is Stelios Hatsiyanu. Is that right? Uh, Well, that's better than I could. It's Sir. Oh, Sir Stelios Hatsiyanu. Iwanu. Okay. Greek. Go on. Greek Cypriot. Greek Cypriot, born on Valentine's Day in 1967, and he is an entrepreneur. Uh, his family um, had quite a bit of money. Yeah, a shipping the line. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Stelmar shipping line, which I think um, startup funds um, provided by the father who owns a shipping line is quite handy. However, that doesn't mean success. No. You may well have been handed the startup money. But he's kept this business going and it's gone from strength to strength, not without its uh, troubles along the way as well. No, we are, of course, talking about um, the low-cost airline EasyJet, you know, the and easy orange. And, yeah, and there's easy everything. everything. Yeah, and one thing I found out is they're very protective of the brand. So um, anybody that uses orange and easy... yeah. Um, they, they jump on them straight away okay. because what their business model now is to license the easy brand 
So they don't own all of these different businesses. They've licensed the brand to all sorts of different companies that follow those the same brand values. Well marketed as well. The history yeah. of some of the um, promo stuff that they did is, is really impressive, especially when um, the um, the mainstream airlines were... Um, sort of fighting against him with when he was introduced as budget airlines yes uh, he, he did some fantastic marketing counter marketing that in a way actually benefited well the one i'm thinking of is the, the one that benefited ba as well as easy okay so when ba launched their budget airline yeah um i believe that um employees of easyjet were dressed in orange boiler suits and went on the flight to promote EasyJet. Easy yeah, but it created news yeah, yeah. and actually both brands yeah. won from that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he said he's, you know, Ryanair is the is the other famous um, budget airline. But, but it is just the whole range of things that that he's involved well, with. Well, did you know he started EasyJet when he was 27? Which, which is a hell of a thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, he had money from his um, shipping magnet father, but he had to take some balls to, to set up and run and keep going in an industry that really doesn't want you to be operating. Yeah, he... Uh... I mean, he's made quite a lot of money out of all of this. Yeah. I'm always the one that mentions the money. I don't know why. I always look, though. So I looked at Forbes. Yesterday, his real-time net worth on Forbes was $1.1 billion. Okay. Okay. Well, that's dropped because we had $2.17 billion in May. Oh. I wonder what he's done. I wonder what he's done. I think all the airlines are facing tough times with the COVID pandemic, aren't they? And I think I read somewhere that EasyJet have posted their first loss in their history. Let me see if I can find. Nah, obviously, I haven't put that in anywhere uh, even vaguely useful for. Oh, yeah. Uh, in Forbes last year, actually, this was. So maybe that's not related to his uh, wealth. Um, is that EasyJet recorded its first annual loss in its 25-year history. Right, okay. What well, I think he's, he's made a lot of money. He's, he's obviously, you know, latched onto something very clever, had a good um, springboard with, with his wealthy family, but he actually has um, runs a philanthropic... Philanthropic? Yeah. Organisation. Yeah, philanthropic organisation. Um, stelios.org oh yes i had a look at that one yeah and they support um <laughs> i think it's quite interesting actually support a diverse range of charitable activities primarily in places where the founder has lived and worked yeah the uk greece cyprus and monaco um and you know that i mean that's that's brilliant um but it just i don't know i don't know why would you just choose I guess it's what you know and what you care about, isn't it? So um, one of the things um, I noticed, he supports disabled entrepreneurs with um, cash prizes. 
um, to stimulate economic growth and job creation in their communities. Uh, I clicked on the link on stelios.org to this particular section and I was a bit sceptical at first. Cynic in me came out because I clicked on the link for more on supporting disabled entrepreneurs and it went to, uh-uh, this page doesn't seem to exist. I thought, oh, is that just uh... lip service? But I went to the home page and found a menu link to Disabled Entrepreneurs UK and it is there. It's run in partnership with Leonard Cheshire oh. and um, they they do have this award system. However, they've suspended the awards for this year due to the pandemic and instead um, they're making donations um, to frontline carers. So um, there's a thank you gift from this particular part of the charity totaling £86,000 that they're giving out to Leonard Cheshire Frontline Carers. So, so that does exist there, they're supporting disabled entrepreneurs. They also give out um, food in Greece and Cyprus. Um, they offer snacks to people who register and ask for them. On average, they give food to 200,000 people who come to their distribution centres each month. And he also funds scholarships for young people at the LSE and City University in London, as well as um, high school in Athens. So, yeah, I think what what I'm getting from this is that it's he supports things that are close to his heart. And 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 I think that's good enough. You know, it's not necessarily all singing or dancing. I I mean, I hadn't heard about any of this work that he does. You just think of him and EasyJet. And the, um, what was the programme that they did at Liverpool Airport about EasyJet that was on? The airport, I think it's <laughs> All right, something as yeah. simple as that. Yeah. Well, according to um, stelios.org, there is um, a bit of a description about uh, his philanthropic journey. So he started giving back to society, it says, when he turned 40 years old and has since formalised a charitable giving with the Stelios Philanthropic Foundation. What I was interested to see is he's also involved with the Prince's Trust. So, oh, well, you've um, had involvement with the Prince's Trust. Yeah, so it, he's actually been involved since 2018 as the uh, chair of the Enterprise Fellows of the Prince's Trust in the UK. I don't know much about that. So I left the Prince's Trust a couple of years ago myself. But it's interesting to see that, you know, the Prince's Trust, I do know, do some excellent work with disadvantaged young people and getting them yeah. into business and into work. So he's putting his money where his passion is, like, like you say, something he's interested in, something he's got experience with. Uh, I also noticed that he's part of this giving pledge. Yeah. Um, that's the, is that the um, Bill Gates giving pledge, isn't it? Yeah, the world's wealthiest individuals to dedicate the majority of their wealth to giving back, which I think is admirable. Going back to, I've just seen the numbers involved in his, um, the money that his dad gave him when he was 25 to start Stelmar Shipping. It was $45 million. Oh, God. <laughs> so that would be in 1982. No, 1992. But then again, you don't start an airline with a 500 loan from the bank, no, do you? No, I know, but... He, yeah, um, so we'll just say 1992, $45 million, and in 2004, it was sold for $677 million. Dear God. 
<laughs> oh, I'm just reading his CV now, so uh, let's have a look here. Um, yeah, the airline was floated, but they still hold um, a large chunk of the shares. Yeah, the, fa the family are the largest shareholders combined, aren't they? They're the largest mm. shareholders. But I was then reading, so this might um, might have an impact on, on their wealth then, because uh, in... Uh, Let's have a look. They're talking about the the way that Stelios is not completely happy with the way that the airline is being run and the direction it's going in. Um, this often happens. How many times do we talk about this? Um, and, and it's particularly to do with the way that they're um, dealing with the fallout from the pandemic. So mm -hmm. um, in this article in Forbes, they were talking about the fact that he was frustrated that they hadn't cancelled the orders for new airplanes and and various other things that he couldn't quite see eye to eye with. But if he's not in charge anymore, he's not in charge, but still owns a lot of the shares. That must so be really difficult, wasn't it? That must be really difficult. But Did according to Forbes, it's still got a solid future. Yeah, but it has to, like all um, airlines at the moment, they're going to have to play really yeah. carefully. Yeah. yeah. But it's all right because. Um, could probably um he's probably making quite a lot of money out of easy hemp easy hemp yeah wow, okay which um i thought okay what's that and this is um cannabis oil yeah cbd yeah um you can have the website in greek if you want uh and it's got exactly the same font and the same orange which is a very particular very much. pantone yeah. color that's been yeah. trademarked hasn't it yeah uh, and, yeah, and but there are also Easy Office. So then I started looking at that, and so there are some really quite swanky office space yeah. uh, in Bristol and London and lots in Manchester where you can, um, yeah, you, you can rent office space. Easy gym, easy storage, yeah. easy property, easy money, easy hub, easy dog walking, <laughs> easy car, easy bus, easy hotel. <laughs> Do you think he just bought all the domain names one yeah. day? absolutely did so yeah you don't see him on the tv now but he used to be on the tv when they were as i say when they were making the airport program from liverpool airport but probably responsible for quite a few jobs i creating quite a few jobs yeah um, um, what i really admire is the strength of that brand and it's great to have a business model that can you know, he's built this solid brand, which you now can go on and earn money from without even having to do the hard work. The hard work involved here is with the legal teams chasing up people who can't find yeah. um, the trademark. Yeah. So, yeah. sorry, my chair's squeaking this week, not you. Right. Okay. <laughs> he, he also, some of the information, do you remember, I can't remember who it was we reviewed, profiled quite a while ago, and we ended up on Super Yacht Fan. Oh, yes, I do. The guy who basically owns an, an island. He was an investor, wasn't yeah, he? Yes, he Somebody was absolutely, yeah. Well, Stelios is on there. So he, of course he's got a super he's, yacht. He's got a super yacht called Fly Me to the Moon. Not on your yacht, mate. You need a rocket for that one. <laughs> Speak to Bezos <laughs> and Musk. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, I, I think we're, we're about done here at the big business briefs. And, uh, yeah, sorry for all the background noise, but I, you know what? I think you're getting used to it now. I wonder if it just gives you a sense of place for us. Yes, that we're not actually in a cardboard box 
with a pillow, which we have considered in the past. You know, when we were <laughs> recording via Zoom, we were trying to figure out ways of um, yeah. sticking our sticking head in a box <laughs> with a pillow. <laughs> And listeners, if you think that the best thing me and Heather could do is stick our head in a box with or without a microphone, then please do let us know. Other podcasts are available. <laughs>